we have been talking a lot uh, lately about a couple of different kind of churches that exist in our world in response to um, the, the condition of our world and, and the challenge of our mission. And we've talked a lot about tradition-focused churches, and we've talked a lot about culturally-focused churches. And hopefully by now, we're all clear that either one of these approach really kind of undermines the deeper gospel, the deeper mission that we're to be about. And then the question becomes, if that is in, in fact the case, if, if these approaches are undermining our mission, then why are these approaches so common? Why do we see them kind of everywhere? And I, I think maybe the best way for us to understand that is to understand that this, these approaches to the mission are simple. And we like things to be simple. The mission, as it's been proposed to us in Scripture, is, is particularly complicated, especially from our point of view as human beings. And we would rather it be simple. And we gravitate towards simple things. You know, we, we tend to romanticize a, a, the simple life that we had in an earlier, earlier time which probably just meant that mom and dad were dealing with all the complications. Probably wasn't all that simple. But, but we like the idea. We sort of romanticize the idea of things being simpler. And couldn't we get back to something simple? Uh, but at the same time, I think we kind of recognize that when we take complex theological ideas like the gospel and reduce them to bumper stickers, I, I think we know that that's kind of bad theology. But we do it because it's simple. It gives us something easy to remember and easy to repeat. The first disciples of Jesus had a, a vastly oversimplified notion about the Messiah. And as they move forward with Jesus... We see at various points in the gospel where these disciples seem to be wondering what on earth they've gotten themselves into. This is not nearly as simple or as clear as we imagined it was. We read the Great Commission that's been given to us as the church and as individual disciples. We read the Great Commission. The Great Commission itself seems simple and straightforward enough. Go into all the world. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them obedience. That seems fairly straightforward. Until we start to look at the condition of the world into which we're supposed to go, and until we, until we look at the, the enormous scope of the work that we're being asked to do, and then all of a sudden, it looks very, very complicated. And that complication becomes maybe even clearer as we consider the three remaining priorities of Jesus. And we've been talking about priorities of Jesus. These are things that Jesus said during his ministry that he came here to do. Ministry priority number eight is establish the kingdom. Establish the kingdom. Jesus talked incessantly about the kingdom and how it was different and how it was, how it was going to function differently and it was going to have different priorities. And so Jesus initiates what to us is essentially an upside-down kingdom. 
it is not based on a worldly order, but a divine order of things. And so, uh, from a human perspective, completely backwards. Mission priority number nine, Jesus says he's come to defeat sin and death. He's going to bring to an end this long-standing system of animal sacrifices by making himself the sacrifice and, and sort of perfecting that sacrifice once and for all. And in the process of doing this, he's going to liberate us from sin, not just the penalty of sin, which is death, that's, that's a pretty big deal, but also from sin itself and all the problems that sin creates. He's going to, to free us from that mess. And mission priority 10, redeem the world. Jesus sets the stage during his ministry for what we might consider the ultimate reconciliation, the, the ultimate perfection of things, where the whole world, the whole of creation, Jesus is going to come into that and make everything new again. Now, when we consider these three priorities, along with all the other pieces, from the standpoint of our mission, the idea that we're supposed to have a, a role in this, that we're supposed to participate with Jesus in all of this, and we look and say, okay, establish the kingdom, defeat sin and death, redeem the world. Okay, Jesus, no problem. Sounds like a normal Tuesday, doesn't it? Let's just redeem the world this week. Well, we should probably point out the really good news in this, which is that Jesus has done and will do all of the hard work involved in, in this, uh, this mission. But when we look at it, when we look at it in tonal, when we look at this idea that we're supposed to be participating in this somehow, uh, we start to understand why it is that when God approaches various people in the scriptural narrative, they often respond with, who, who, who me? Are you, are you sure you got the right guy? I think you were thinking of somebody else. Because... God sees us in a way that we simply do not see ourselves. Now we think about how on earth are we supposed to participate in this mission? How are we supposed to have any success with it at all? We need to understand firstly that the kingdom is our present opportunity to join with Jesus in his redemptive project. When we come under his authority as individuals, when we come under his authority as, as, a, as a broader community, we become an outpost of the kingdom. And the kingdom is this place where sin doesn't dominate, where death doesn't win, where what's lost and broken get a, gets a, a glimpse of what redemption looks like and feels like. It is the restoration of our broken world, the restoration of our broken relationships, the restoration of our broken selves to come somehow closer to the intent that God had for us when he created us. And one could certainly make the case that we are barely redeemed enough ourselves to actually participate in this redemptive work, that we have no part in it. And yet we do. 
And this is what these fishermen must have been wondering as Jesus invites them to become world changers. Do we really have a part? Why us? And I think to succeed in any part of this mission, we have to learn to see ourselves and we have to learn to see each other the way that Jesus does. Because if we're going to understand redemption as the renewal of creation, it would help for us to develop some vision around what the creation looked like when it was new the first time. And so, to that end, we will go back to Genesis 1. We're going to focus on Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the world animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. I want to focus on this this morning because I want to suggest to you that the core principle of all of the creation is the image of God. It's all based on this singular idea, and it's an idea that is somewhat easy to overlook because the phrase itself, created in the image of God, is somewhat ambiguous. It's sort of dropped into the text with little to no explanation. It's just there, and yet it is central to the entire story. And not only that, it's really at the heart of the gospel message, and in many ways, it is the defining quality of the church. Because what the image of God principle tells us is that humanity is in fact unique in all of creation. That God made everything, but humanity is unique in that God imbues man and woman with something of himself, some part of himself. So, uh, some years ago now, I first met my distant cousins in Arkansas, I made a trip down to Arkansas to meet my cousins for the first time. I'm visiting with my cousins, I come, come into my cousin's house, and one of the first things that was said to me is, oh, you are definitely a Parks. And she said, because, because we can see it in you. So all the men in the Parks family have sort of the same shaped face. We have the same nose. We have the same high forehead. We all look alike. And so without ever having met me before, their first impression of me is, you, you look like one of us. Well, here is this idea about the image of God. God has written something onto us, onto our soul, onto our character, such that, such that when he looks at us, he sees something in us that makes him say, that's one of mine. That belongs to me. That is unique to humanity in all of creation. The image of God then confers upon humanity inherent value and dignity. And this is really important 
This is, I, I know it would be easy for you to ignore this as sort of church speak, but this is really, really important because we are constantly, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are constantly rating and evaluating each other. And we're evaluating each other uh, based on things like, uh, like, like appearance, based on our assumptions about each other's intelligence, on, on education, on how much wealth we've accumulated, on what kind of social status we have, on how important we are in the human scheme of things. Jesus essentially says to us, none of this, none of this is fundamentally how people obtain value. None of this really matters. Because when God looks at people, he looks at their heart, and he looks at this image of God that has been written upon them. This is why they are valuable to him, because he sees the family resemblance. And this value exists in humanity rather without exception. All a soul needs in order to have this value is the potential to reflect the image of God. Not even a matter of whether or not they're doing it. Just if that potential exists. Now, founding his kingdom on this principle, Jesus eviscerated the social order. And I'm sorry for using a $10 word, but I was trying to think of a word that was strong enough. And there's really not a word strong enough to explain what it is that Jesus does to the social order in making this assumption. It is eviscerated. It is decimated. It is destroyed. It's not possible for me to exaggerate to you this morning how revolutionary a principle this is. So Jesus comes into this world where the Sadducees and and the priesthood, they are the ruling class. They are stewards of the Torah and the temple. And in Mark 12, Jesus says they are ignorant of the scriptures and ignorant of the power of God. Jesus comes into a world where the Pharisees are sort of the rabbinical class, and they are at least outwardly the most pious people of their day and looked up to as people who honor and revere God. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, they are hypocrites, they are whitewashed tombs, there's nothing there. Jesus talks about the wealthy, and understand that the people in Jesus' day, much like we do today, assumed that the wealthy were blessed by God, that they, they, they had had this wealth because they had God's favor. And Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 19 that they are perhaps the least likely to ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And his followers are astonished. But he doesn't end there. Jesus prioritized the poor and the sick and basically anybody in the culture who had been disowned by this faulty theology that said, if you are disadvantaged, it's because you lack the favor of God. He welcomed women and children in a culture that had largely marginalized women and children. And he has this crazy reputation for associating with, even dining with, the worst sinners and tax collectors who were regarded as even worse than the worst sinners. 
Jesus values each and every soul for his or her potential to glorify God by reflecting his image. Now, today, we largely take it for granted that people have inherent value. We don't often live up to that ideal, but we believe that that ideal exists. There are always people in our culture who are ready to qualify that and say who deserves to live and who deserves uh, to be honored. But generally, we embrace this, this notion. It's in our Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We bank on that a great deal. We talk about it, and our culture has become very fond of talking about diversity and inclusion. And in those conversations about diversity and inclusion, they are often very critical of the church and very critical of Scripture for presumably undermining that diversity and inclusion. Let me make something really clear this morning, something that we all need to understand as we move forward with this uh, social conversation. The equality of humanity is a fundamentally biblical idea. In fact, it is no exaggeration to say that outside the Bible, the concept of equality does not exist in human civilization. It existed nowhere. There was no major human civilization at any point in history that embraced the idea that humans were fundamentally equal because of how they were created. What has been regarded in Western culture as self-evident has for almost all of history and in every location around the world not been self-evident at all. As a matter of fact, in all of those cultures, power, wealth, gender, status, citizenship, age, uh, castes, bloodlines, position, and violence had everything to do with how we assigned value to people. And this was taken as a given, not as an evil of humanity, but a given. And it didn't matter what caste, what status you were in, everyone from the highest to the lowest basically embraced the idea that wherever I was born, that's where I'm meant to be and I'll stay there for the duration. Jesus comes along and Jesus' message basically humbles the proud and elevates the humble. What men see, Jesus says, that all of that fades None of that is going to matter, but the image of God confers value. And the image of God can be beautifully evident in the most common of men, and it can be completely obscured in the powerful and the beautiful. And particularly in his new kingdom, in the kingdom of Christ, this is the standard, such that Paul says in Galatians 3.26, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was revolutionary. 
this kingdom ethos was a radical departure from Roman culture. And frankly, it was a pretty big challenge to Jewish culture. Rome was rather infamous for extending rare privileges like basic human rights exclusively to Roman citizens, which were very difficult to come by. And Jews, of course, regarded their lineage as key to their in with God. But the church is commissioned by Jesus to view all nations, all peoples as equals. Rome was shamelessly stratified by social classes. And it was very difficult, if not impossible, to move between social classes. But the church was commissioned to treat rich people and poor people the same, to treat slaves and free people the same. Rome had some serious double standards for women. And here the church is commissioned with treating men and women the same in Christ. The church encouraged the education of women. And it did something really remarkable that the Romans thought was insane. It taught men to treat women with respect and dignity. Roman children were largely considered dispensable. Before they reached certain milestones, they weren't even considered fully human. Such that abortion being fairly rare in Rome because the technology didn't really exist all that well, to leave children out, to leave babies out to die of exposure was quite common. And incidentally, it was completely the father's decision. The mother could have no say in it. A lot of girls were left to die because they were considered less valuable children than boys, but just as often those girls were collected by nefarious others to be raised into prostitution. The church not only valued its own children in a way that the Romans thought was ridiculous, but it valued the lives of these children so much that it often collected the abandoned children of the Romans in order to raise them as their own. There's a legacy of kingdom churches here that I think is really critical to our mission today. We have to view the world as Jesus views it. Matthew 13, Jesus offers these parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then uh, in his joy, he went and sold all he had had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, often we take these twin parables to mean that the kingdom itself is a treasure and it should be worth whatever we have to get, give in order to obtain it. But there's another meaning here in which Jesus is the merchant in the story. And he finds something that he's prepared to give away all that he has in order to gain that thing. And what is that thing. The image of God is the hidden treasure within humanity. 
It is a part of us that's sometimes lost, sometimes forgotten, sometimes unseen, sometimes unappreciated, but it is found by Jesus, and he is prepared to give anything in order to restore it. So what exactly is this image of God? Well, that's a complex study, but, but we can understand it this morning. We can understand that, that treasure as the human potential for godliness. The potential to be the men and women that we were created to be. And we see that potential emerge and reveal itself from time to time. We see acts of kindness and acts of grace. We see people who make deep and abiding commitments to one another. We see selflessness. We see sacrificial love. And these precious things are probably all too rare in humanity, and yet they represent this eternal and divine potential that heaven sees in us. It, it may be buried at times, but it's still there. And when we neglect to see the image of God, whether on ourselves or on others, we tend to value ourselves and others by other means, means that just don't hold up. Or sometimes we assume that because Jesus loves us like no other, he has no expectations of us. The image of God represents a potential, and potentials are meant to be realized. The image of God that Jesus sees in us is a precious treasure waiting to be discovered, a treasure that remains hidden and buried is of no use to anyone. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, uh, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, many have hardened their hearts against godliness, have hardened their hearts against the image of God within them. They have the image of God upon them, written within them, but they sort of bury it, cover it with dirt. They deny its existence, and they refuse to be known by it. And they chase after broken things, and they treat that image of God within them with contempt. And this is a tragedy. It's a tragedy generally meant to be met with compassion because it is enormous loss. It is tragic if we have the potential to reflect God's glory, but do we decide instead to project human depravity? But this is, Paul says, not the way that we learned Christ. We learn to see ourselves, we learn to see others through this lens. The image of God 
is the potential for godliness. And so in Christ, it is that image of God for which we strive. So he says in 1 Timothy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. The kingdom reserves the highest honor for those who train for godliness. This is not Paul condemning your gym membership. It's just a metaphor. But Paul is saying, in life we strive for so many things. We, we train ourselves for so many things. And, and a lot of them are things that have some value, some, some of them less so than others. We, we train for fitness. We train our intellect. We train for our occupation. We train to acquire wealth and to acquire power. But in kingdom, we value above everything else, we value godliness. This is what we train for. This is what we strive for. The full potential of the image of God upon us clearly is not something that we're probably going to achieve in, in this lifetime. But it is, in fact, a potential that Christ means for us to realize, to, to pursue. And so we find ourselves in this, again, sort of a difficult tension for us as human beings to navigate. One in which every human being we encounter has a baseline of value that is far and away greater than any value that our fellow human beings ever assign to us. But at the same time, it is a call to train for the godliness that is our potential, to move forward, to grow, not simply to be accepted for the value that we have in the eyes of God, but to do something with that value that makes it real.